podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Hi, um, Hi, Bingley. (laughs) (laughs) Bingley's here snacking on some peanut butter. So sorry (laughs) if you can hear that. (laughs) Um, I am super excited to talk about this one with you today. I know Edith Wharton and Gilded Age Lit is a favorite topic of yours. And I really enjoyed revisiting this one and I want to process my thoughts with you. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's so much that we could talk about with this novel. And I really like Edith Wharton. I think she's a fascinating literary figure. The House of Mirth is the first work of hers that I read in college. And I really liked it then. I think I liked it even better now. It's not necessarily the kind of like, oh, this is one of my favorite classics in that I love the characters or that I love being in it because stuff happens that's really uncomfortable and sad. It's really a critique kind of book, um, social critique, which we'll talk about a lot. But I do think that the glittering Gilded Age world is really fascinating and fun to be in for a while. And Just so many of the themes and even the historical context of this book feels so relevant for today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, all of that makes me even more excited to talk about it with you because I feel like I read it and enjoyed it a lot more this time as well. Um, I found it to be much more complex than I remembered, but also much more readable and propulsive and just not like you said it's not fun but it is because it's dramatic it really kept me turning pages in a way that a lot of classics don't but I actually and this is what I'm still processing and I'm just excited to see how this conversation where it goes because I found myself at times getting frustrated because I felt like the book wasn't as subversive as I wanted it to be at times. Not that every book has to like have a political agenda or align with my political (laughs) views or anything or be subversive. But I think I just kind of went in with more of that expectation. And I'm excited to unpack that because it is and it isn't. And I think in many ways, that's what makes it great is there's like a complexity to the world she's portraying and the social critiques she's exploring. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I think that it could be, some of her other works might be more subversive. Um, This is one of her earlier full-length novels. But Edith Wharton is from the world that she's critiquing. And so I don't think the critique goes as far as maybe some of us would like. Because she is still very much of that world and benefiting from that world. This is one of those books where you really can dig into how much of the author's life is in here. Because 
I think in her case, she really was writing from her own experience. So this was published in 1905, and we referenced the Gilded Age literature, which is just sort of the time period that this novel comes out of. You can think of that as roughly maybe like the 1870s to the early 1900s or for other movements, if you think of like the Industrial Revolution up to World War One, And a ton happens in that time period. So, but Gilded Age specifically, and a lot of the literature that comes out of this time is really marked by the wealth and the power of business tycoons at the time. And then in contrast to that, the vastly growing cities, the huge wave of immigration, and then this sort of modernization that comes along with labor organization and class differences and clashes where people are really realizing the stark differences between the extremely wealthy and the extremely poor. And so all of that considered, I just find that the time period feels so relevant when we're looking at, you know, how history repeats itself over the course of decades and centuries. It just very much feels like there are so many parallels from Gilded Age to today. And not just because it all kind of ended in a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And maybe that's also what made our reading experience right now all the better than when we had first read this book because it did feel more more relevant in a way and just yeah like like I like it was speaking to today's present moment yeah and so Edith Wharton herself she lived from 1862 to 1937 so almost exactly over the entire course of the Gilded Age time period. And she was part of that wealthy upper class and the high society that she critiques in her work. She was well-educated, had a whole library of books at her disposal. Like, imagine the library of your dreams. And that's what she had. And she was in a really unhappy marriage. And so I think that her opinions on love and happiness sort of come out and emerge from this novel in a really significant way. And just a fun fact, she was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, which is so cool. So cool. Yeah. And I mean, I think it it's kind of an of course she was part of that class because who else would have time to write all of these <laughs> <Right>. novels? <laughs> and so I, I think, you know, authors especially female authors who have written classics who were not part of like an aristocratic elite are really the exception and not the rule. And so I do think that it's interesting that we talk a lot about Edith Wharton's class privilege, maybe more than we talk about some male writers' various privileges. And we really kind of like harp on on that. So even even though I said earlier that I was frustrated that I wanted the book to be more subversive in some ways, I'm also recognizing that I'm kind of putting that on this book because Edith Wharton is a woman and in a way that I don't put it on other classic male writers. So 
I I think she's infinitely fascinating. I love like the the images from her biographer about how she would just write in in bed like over breakfast in bed and then just like leave her pages like scattered about the room <laughs> for her maid to collect and then her like uh secretary to type up and reorder and all of that like I I she's just incredibly fascinating there's this element of fantasy about her where like that sounds delicious doesn't yeah. it to have <laughs> breakfast in bed on a tray and sip tea and then just like leave your papers all over and not have a care in the world and have people to clean up after you and live in a mansion and do whatever you want to with your time. And there, I mean, as much as that leaves itself open for critique, there is just this element of fantasy about this world and about the world of privilege that I think makes for that, like getting sucked into the glitter of the novel and the New Yorkness of the novel so easy for readers. Oh, totally. And and clearly Wharton was aware of that because Lily Bart, our protagonist in the novel, is a striver who wants to secure her position in in that world. And she is infinitely compelling for that. But before we get into Lily and this book more, we did just want to share that if you're interested in these discussions about Gilded Age literature, Edith Wharton as an author. Chelsea and I taught a class for our Patreon literature scholars in July all about Gilded Age Lit and Wharton. So we have more information about, about this book, this author, and just, you know, this this world on our Patreon page. So the the class the live class already happened, but it lives in perpetuity on the Patreon feed. So we'd love to have you join us over there and dig in even deeper to this author. Okay, before we dig into Lily, which I think we can probably spend a good chunk of time talking about her because she is the main character and there's just so much to unpack. We should probably just give a really quick plot summary synopsis. And so Lily Bart we referenced as the protagonist, who isn't necessarily the most lovable heroine (laughs) in all of classic literature. She's really complicated. But she is sort of of this glittering upper-class world, but her family, um, her parents died, and she's not left with much money. She has a wealthy aunt who sort of takes her under her wing, but Lily is very much relying on the generosity of her peers. So she is considered of the upper class, but she doesn't actually have money. So she needs to marry well. Sounds familiar. Sounds a little bit (laughs) Austin-like. It is very Austin-like, but it takes a dark turn because Lily does not always make the best decisions. In fact, she's really indecisive. And so the timing is often off because she's at the mercy of people for her livelihood, for paying off her gambling debts, for filling her wardrobe with dresses. That means that she's really open to getting stabbed in the back or her reputation getting dragged through the mud. And so there's a lot of drama in here and we will definitely talk about the ending. Um, So We'll, we'll leave where Lily ends up and we'll warn you about spoilers for that. 
Um, but we really just follow her on her journey and we end up sort of in her perspective a lot of the time. I think that's a great, great summary. And yes, um, we will give ample spoiler warnings before we get really into the ending. But we do have to talk about it because it's it's so it's so important. But you referenced that Lily was not the most likable. You referenced her indecisiveness. What what are your feelings as a reader about Lily? And I guess I'm especially curious if they were different on this read than on your first, if you can remember. I think I probably had a little bit more um, sympathy for her on this read. And... I, yeah, I, I hate always using the term unlikable because she has very likable qualities. And there are a lot of reasons why these people let her hang out with them. She's beautiful. She's really entertaining. She really knows how to play the social game. Um, I thought that that was fascinating. So she's in many ways, she's really fun to read about. She also just like really likes pretty things. Yeah. And who does you can't can't falter <laughs> for that. Um Okay, so here's the deal. Lily on this read so reminded me of the striving Instagram influencers who like will go to the fake model airplane and pretend <laughs> that they're going to the Bahamas by holding a toilet seat cover in front of their face. <laughs> and like will go to a rooftop bar and hang out with all of their friends who are like dressed in designer clothes and then return those clothes the next day and only order seltzer at the bar because they have to pretend that they're of this lifestyle, but they aren't really, but that that's what they post on social media. And that is who I had in my mind the entire time that I was reading the book this time. And I don't consider myself in a lifestyle influencer, but I am on Instagram a lot. And I maybe that's why I just had like a softer place for her this time around, because anyone who uses social media knows what it's like to put one version of yourself out there and be constantly wondering if that's the true version of yourself and like be sort of have those complex feelings about it. And she has those complex feelings about being herself in society. Yeah, it's it's a great comparison. And another way in which the book does feel so relevant to today is just this, um, I don't know, Lily's world is is so insular in terms of who she has to impress and how she has to be constantly shifting her persona based on who she's trying to impress in a given moment. And the internet can feel very much that way, where you are playing a game, putting out a version of yourself that you think will either like go over best with your social circle or be the most lucrative version of, of yourself, which Lily definitely falls when she's pursuing Percy Grice, she is becoming a, a a version of Lily who isn't particularly well liked by the rest of the circle of her friends, but could be the most marketable because it's who Percy likes. So I I think that's a fantastic connection. I I totally see that, and I I think just I think in general too, just the idea that 
you know, the people in this book who have money and comfort and stability, Wharton does a really good job of showing us that, like, they're not the most deserving people by any means. So it's easy to also just kind of feel empathy for Lily because, sure, she's scheming and sometimes conniving, but so is everyone else. So why shouldn't she have those things, too? Yeah, when she's so when she's stacked up against the other characters of this novel, she just gets more and more sympathetic and you start to feel worse for her because of how awful they all are. And they really are awful to each other. Um, But we sort of touched on the fact that she's really indecisive. And I think we should dig into that a little bit more because, like you said, she's pursuing Percy Grace And she's just got him as the target for, okay, like, I know I would be really comfortable. I don't really like him that much. He's not very interesting to me. He's not very attractive. But I would be really comfortable if we got together and got married. Um, But she kind of, like, waits too long and lingers in this space where she's constantly going back and forth of like, well, is this the life that I want or what do I do? But I don't have any options. And then he ends up engaged to someone else and it passes her by. And then she has to think, what do I do next? And what do I do next? And she's 29, which is like spinsterhood Mm -hmm. for this time period. I think I read somewhere about Edith Wharton that when she turned 23, she was considered to almost be on the shelf. <laughs> so 29, she's she knows her time is running out, but she can't make a decision on settling down. And it's unclear. Her, her desires are just kind of unclear. Does she really want love and happiness? Because she's constantly talking about how she wants to be able to redecorate a mansion yeah, (laughs) and throw parties. So it just doesn't seem like she knows what she really, really wants and what will make her happy. Yeah, no, I I think that that's so true. And I I think I first read this book in, in high school. And I think a lot of the jacket copies too kind of sell it as, you know, Lily... She wants she wants wealth and stability and to be able to throw lavish parties and have nice clothes and all of that. I, she doesn't even want stability. That's the wrong word. She she wants luxury. <laughs> but, you know, she's in love with Lawrence Selden, who is poorer and can't give her that that life. And I think that's very much how I read it in high school, like that she was in love with this one guy, but knew she wanted a wealthy life and that that was the real conflict of the book but i don't think that's the real conflict of that's a conflict in the book i think how much she's in love with selden is up for debate but it really is more about her own indecision and her kind of wondering constantly if something better is going to come along which I think is also relatable. Like Lily has major FOMO. She's like really worried that if she, you know, commits to Percy Grice, then somebody who's rich and interesting might come along. And then what is she going to do? Yeah. And I think something that's interesting about that is, meanwhile, we have these other characters 
in her orbit. We'll definitely have to talk about Selden, but there are a couple of married women or there's there's a married woman, there's a divorced woman, and they have a lot of freedom to do whatever they want, to pursue extramarital affairs where their husbands seem pretty aware of it and they're just kind of like, okay. Um, to pursue those affairs, the um, divorced woman, Lily is like, okay, you're not married. Just because you were married, you get to just like run around town however you want. And she's just like wondering how that's fair. And <laughs> it seems like that's more what Lily would want is like, she wants to be divorced before she even gets married. I know. I think that one of the, her big hesitations about Percy Grice is when somebody says like, oh, he doesn't believe, he would never get divorced. He doesn't believe yeah. in divorce. And then she's like, hmm, I might have to rethink right. this. <laughs> and when you think about her options at the time, I don't know. You don't really falter for it. <laughs> yeah, she she kind of reminds me um, in some ways of like a Lady Mary character in Downton Abbey who like, you know, openly talks about how like awesome it would be to be, at least in the early seasons, to be like a wealthy widow. And like, and you can totally see see that. Like if you are getting married exclusively, it's a job, right? It's like mm -hmm. you're getting married as a career path because that is the only, you know, means available to you as a woman in the social circle um, to have money in the lifestyle that that you want. Um, and so then like getting divorced would be like an early retirement and you don't have to do the work anymore and you still have the <laughs> benefits. <laughs> And meanwhile, she's really clear on what she doesn't want, and she doesn't want to be dingy. How many times do you think dingy was used in this novel? Oh, my gosh. So many, especially, like, packed into the first 10 pages. Yeah. <laughs> and we see that to her, dingy just means, like, if you're below a certain income level, you're dingy. Mm-hmm. So that, like, that's this broad category of people, like, from the woman who is washing the stairs of her aunt's mansion to um, Gertie, who is, like, kind of a working girl, is more of the, of the regular people, <laughs> lives in a sort of tenement situation, is passionate about charity, is going to kind of, you can kind of get hints that, oh, like, she's going to be a suffragette someday. Um, and that she's dingy too, even though she's more comfortable. She's not necessarily living in squalor. Um, and so you know that that's what Lily doesn't want. And then you, it's, I think the tough part is if she married Selden, she, you know, her comfort level is different from a lot of people's, but he's a lawyer and he does like well enough for himself to keep a home, to keep a roof over his head, that his spouse would not have to work. Um, but that's not good enough for her. And he's accepted by the crowd that she wants to be accepted by. And it's different for him because he's he's a man, but he gets to go to some of these parties and travel with some of these socialites because they enjoy his company. And so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's not a situation 
a setup where he's penniless and she just can't bring herself to to marry him. It's 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 a significant economic step down from how she grew up, but it's very much more in line with her present reality. Yeah, like they might not be traveling to Europe once a season, but she she would be set up pretty well. And so that's where it gets really complicated of like you can see she's constantly thinking like, oh, I don't want this dingy life and I I don't want to be working in a hat shop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then, um, but then you're like, okay, well, you have limited options and this guy doesn't seem so bad. Yeah, I think it's also funny how, and I, I'd be curious to see if you felt the same way while reading, but just how quickly as a reader I get sucked into the world and I'm just like, Lily, why are you going for a walk with Selden when you should be securing Percy Grice? (laughs) (laughs) Where, you know, I in real life would not make that kind of argument or or give that kind of advice to a friend. But once you're wrapped up in the world of the Gilded Age, it's really easy to to root for Lily in the with in the way that kind of the the story encourages you to root for her i guess it's true and then you feel so let down when she makes a choice that you know is going to come back to bite her mm-hmm. like when she um sort of makes makes a deal with this married man who she says like okay well take this money Go ahead and put it in the stock market. I don't know how that works, but I know that that's what you guys all do. Um, that's what all of you guys do. And then you come home and you party with us. So go take it to work and then see if you can make me some money and not realize that she's totally going to be taken advantage of, which as a reader, you just know mm-hmm. the other shoe is going to drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I think that some of that is is particularly interesting like I I think that that element is a little bit more subversive and interesting to me just about like how you know women were not encouraged to or have the ability to have like financial literacy and were totally dependent on men whether that was their husbands or their fathers or some creep who was taking advantage of them in this situation I also we kind of glossed over Lily's gambling. And I think that that's really important because Lily isn't just poor because of circumstances. Like she makes really bad decisions with the money she does have. She Mm -hmm. goes into debt with various dressmakers and jewelers because she has to be dressed a certain way. And then she plays bridge and she, she knows that she's playing with people who are going to be betting a lot of money and the same is going to be expected of her. And she does it, does it anyways. And then comes back to her room and thinks only $20 left. I must've been robbed. (laughs) And so I I think that I, I just, I think that's important because she isn't just passive in these situations. Like she has actively contributed to her financial ruin. I think there's one passage where she's contemplating how much money she has left And 
it just sort of crosses her mind that, you know, other women might have a savings account where they put their allowance and they save up. And it's just never really crossed her mind to do that because getting married is her savings account. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But she's not getting married. Yeah, Yeah, but she's sabotaging herself in, in that regard for sure. Yeah. You're so right that this brain just, or this book just like messes with your brain because in any other situation, especially if I was reading a contemporary novel, I would be like, you go girl. Like you do not need to get married. And yet in the house of mirth, I am just like, settle down, (laughs) get yourself a husband. I'm like Mrs. Bennett over here. Totally. (laughs) And I think that that is one of the things I just really enjoyed about this reading experience is like, you get so caught up in, in the story and the the time and the place and it it makes it really fun like I, it would be hard to read just like a contemporary retelling of this book it wouldn't be nearly as enjoyable but the way Wharton writes it in the world she she creates and that she lived in and was such a keen observer of uh really <laughs> yeah messes with your brain there are some really fun moments like I think that the live portrait scene is so much fun and just a lot of fun to picture. And if you're a Gilmore Girls fan, yeah. you can just totally make the connection because the House of Mirth is Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. Like, it really is. <laughs> um, there are a lot of connections to be drawn there. We can record a bonus episode on that. But um, there are some really fun scenes in here. And yet you just feel yourself spiraling downward with Lily and you just the fall you are waiting for the crash okay so let's talk about that spiral because she gets herself into this situation where and I feel empathy for her here because I I agree that we as readers we know that this guy who's pretending to be (laughs) so benevolent is going to expect something from Lily in return. But I can understand why she doesn't quite see that long game. And, and so I, I feel for her. And what he ends up doing is he's inve- actually investing his own money and then giving her the, the profits and acting like, oh, I'm doing you this huge favor where I'm just investing your money and you're, you're, you're making so much and it's so great. Then he tells her the truth and basically expects, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's funny. Like he expects just to spend time with her, but I like, (laughs) we know what that means. Yeah. Um, and she is appalled and I I think, you know, much to her credit, she's like, no, I'm just going to pay you back. Um, Mm -hmm. and so she is in a massive amount of debt to basically her best friend's husband, And not only is she in debt, but she's beholden to him because of this secret. Yeah. And it just gets worse from there because then she ends up taking a trip. And this is with the um, Bertha Dorset, the married woman who just cheats on her husband all the time. And Lily goes along on this trip because she kind of thinks that she's being set up with a single guy. But really, Bertha is trying to have an affair under her husband's nose and wants Lily to distract the husband. 
And it just absolutely turns on Lily and she becomes the villain of the story when they return to New York and her reputation is just completely ruined, which is not only horrible because the only thing she has is her reputation, but also because that means that she's disinherited from her aunt. Her aunt leaves her just like a meager sum, just barely enough to cover her debts and so this leaves Lily truly destitute to the point where she has to go work in a hat shop and um, work as a secretary. And she becomes a working girl, which is something that has been in the back of her mind this whole time. And she's like, there's even, I mean, I don't think she thinks this because we just get this constant dinginess fear all over, but some of the scenes or some of the hints that we see where we sort of see Wharton peel back the curtain of like how the other half lives is that these women get to have their own apartments and they get to live however they want. And yes, they go to work, but then they get to decide how their time is spent and they get, you know, just a different kind of freedom. But Lily isn't about to just sort of like change her outlook on life. And so her depression really gets worse from there. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that that Wharton seems to kind of like address depression, like as head on as could be possible at this time. Yeah. Really show that. Um, Lily becomes dependent on on sleeping pills. It's just, it's, it's really, it's, it's tragic. I, I do, I think I get frustrated with uh, wealthy author's depictions of, oh, look how much freedom the poorer mm-hmm. class has. They can marry whoever they want and, and and they have their own places and they have autonomy. To me, that's a very like upper crust, <laughs> like yeah. glossing over of the situation, like where, you know, we feel like, oh, Lily was really the trapped one the whole time. And it's just like, <laughs> no. <"Well." laughs> and I don't I don't know that Wharton is simplifying things and com- in that way to that degree. But it's very clear that, like, she has no idea what it would be like to be poor or middle class even. Right. Yeah. It's just it is romanticized a little bit, especially in the character of Gertie. Um, who somehow still like works her way into some of these like big weddings and celebrations <laughs> because she's a distant relation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is that like romanticized element of it. But gosh, I mean, so ultimately, here's the big spoiler. Lily ends up taking too many sleeping pills and it's ambiguous whether this was just sort of an accident um, because she's addicted to them or whether it is purposeful, um, which makes for a great book club discussion. Um, but she takes them and dies just before Selden comes to her apartment to propose to her. And he's too late. And it's just like the last gut punch of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think, it's it's so important that Wharton made that choice. And I I think that there are so many ways to read the ending, and I'm not 
totally sure even how I read it on this this read through. But, you know, I, I, I think it says a lot about like Wharton's views about class and and striving and if you can or should like desire to be to change classes and all of that, that that Lily ultimately dies and does not, you know, does not get what she she wants, but also um, just never, never feels settled in any regard. Yeah. And one of the tough parts is. Yes. So she missed all of these opportunities and she waited too long to secure herself a a life. Um, But Selden is also too late. Like he is inhibited by these class differences and sort of intimidated too. Mm -hmm. And so he has put it off for too long to where she's not even necessarily his equal, but even beneath him Mm -hmm. before he finally proposes. And so you just get all of these people who it seems like they are constantly reaching and reaching and reaching and they all end up being too late. Yeah. I mean, I I think that, you know, as much as this is a book about class, it's also very much just a book about indecision and a book about like not committing. And, and some of that is within the class confines. Like, you know, if, if Lily had just committed to being in the upper class and married the man who would have her, then her story would have turned out totally different. If, if Selden had been able to just commit, then yeah, their, their story would look completely different. And so I, I think, I, yeah, I think the, the ending is completely tragic, but it, it is just, it's interesting to me that as a teenager, I very much read this as like, oh, they were supposed to be together. And the tragedy is that they miss that by a matter of, of hours. And I, I mean, that is, it's part of it, but, but the love story isn't really what pulled me in or, or stood out to me this time. So something else that I think really comes out of this, a theme that emerges at the end of this novel, but is consistent throughout is this uh, constant questioning of the self and what is your true self versus like, what's your public self? What's your society self? But who are you? And that very individualist question is very much of the time of the Gilded Age, right? Where like people were actually well, people of a certain class had time to contemplate who (laughs) they were in the world. Um, We had all of this new money coming up, right? And these businessmen who were inventing, reinventing themselves from, you know, a, a poor boy in the middle of the country. And then all of a sudden they play the stock market and and there's just there is this constant reinvention and just this like obsession with the self going on in this time period and so at the end of this book um Selden sees Lily on the bed and Wharton writes that it was her real self every pulse in him ardently denied her real self had lain warm on his heart but a few hours earlier What had he to do with this estranged and tranquil face, which for the first time neither paled or brightened at his coming? 
Gertie, strangely tranquil too, with the conscious self-control of one who has ministered to much pain, stood by the bed. And she starts to talk to him. And then we get this like scene between Gertie and Selden. But Selden never really, he thinks he knows Lily. Mm -hmm. Does he ever really, does anyone really know Lily? She doesn't know herself. Mm -hmm. We don't know who she is. And yet he has this idea of her in his head. And so when he's looking at her, she's lying there dead. He's like, no, this is not herself. This is not who she is. Um, And I just find that really fascinating and just, I don't know, Wharton's saying some interesting things about it. Yeah, I I think that's one of my favorite themes of this book. And what really does draw me to Wharton, in spite of some of my qualms about, I don't know, maybe the politics of of her books or her person, um, is that she really is wrestling with that that question of of the self, which I find completely compelling in literature. And I also think is very much ahead of her time. And I and I mean like like just barely ahead of her time because it really it wasn't until post-World War One, World War II that male authors started wrestling with that question more because men of a certain class always knew what their place in society was and who they their self was and who that who they were internally was who how the world saw them and those were cohesive and then when we entered the modernist period male authors really start delving more into that but women writers got there first because their lives were always a little bit more tenuous and uncertain and so i i think that's a really great aspect of of Wharton's work and why she should be celebrated very much alongside these, you know, great modernist writers who we're constantly bringing into the classroom or talking about with reverence. Yeah. And it's just one of the themes that speaks to today. So, well, like I was saying, Lily reminds me so much of an influencer or a celebrity. Um, and I just think that, gosh, we can really easily get so wrapped up in those questions of the self and who we are, but it is it is a privileged question um, because mm-hmm. to have the time to contemplate that and the time to contemplate who you are putting online versus who you are in reality means that you're not preoccupied with other bigger issues. Um buried under the house of mirth and buried under all of the glitter and glamour, there are labor unions ready to organize. There is the suffragette movement. There are um, immigrants living in tenements and just horrible situations. There are children working in factories. I mean, there is there are so many societal issues to tackle, but people are this this upper class who could really do a lot to solve them are too preoccupied with who they are in the world. And it just feels so present and that feels so real to today. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I, I think it's fascinating that Wharton is one of the authors that we can enter that through because she she was quite conservative, described herself as an imperialist, like was not a suffragette herself was against that that movement and just 
she in her real life, I think, very much worked to even though she did a lot of charity, she you know, the social system worked for her. And so she wasn't speaking out or disrupting it in any way. But her books still, in some ways, offer some critiques of that society. And so it's it's very interesting. And, you know, that's why I started this by saying, I'm not sure how subversive this book is and why I have some frustrations with it. But I still think, like you said, it's so, so relevant and and really we can get to a lot of of today's issues and the like economic systems and issues at the past that set us up for <laughs> for today by reading and discussing a book like the house of mirth yeah um i think that yeah you're totally right we can get a lot more subversive when we take a look at this book and we can extrapolate so much from it, especially given what we know about the historical context or what we want to apply to our society. But her critique of her society is really so much more Mm Austin-like. It's just a novel of manners. It's just like a look at how hypocritical certain societal expectations are and how, um, how the upper class considers goodness and how how they're hypocritical. But that's about as far as the critique goes. It isn't this like big social critique, but it's such a good jumping off point to that critique, which makes it so fun. Exactly. All right, let's get into our pairings. All right, Sarah. So I have to do a little bit of romance novel gushing. Um, And this first pairing that I would like to recommend is for the people who really, really want Lily and Selden to get together, which I think is a totally valid reading. Yeah. Um, Or just for readers in general who pick up these classic novels and are you know, want to get lost in the time period, but want heroines whose choices they can actually root for um, and who won't necessarily, like, disappoint them so much in the end. And so Joanna Shoup writes just the best Gilded Age historical romance novels. And she's got a couple of series. I really love the Uptown Girls series, The first one is called The Rogue of Fifth Avenue. And the Uptown Girls series is about a group of sisters. You can very much imagine them like Skylar sisters, kind of. There are even like a couple Hamilton references sprinkled (laughs) throughout, but they're not like soup. They're not cheesy um, with the references. And I... I just think that this romance series is the perfect antidote like to some for the perfect book for someone who picked up the House of Mirth and was just like, oh, I really enjoy being in this world and I love the glitter and the glamour, but I want a happy ending Um, or I want more of that social critique. Joanna Shoup does more of that social critique. The characters are much more aware of the class differences in their lives These are characters who want to make a legitimate difference. Um, And they're just a lot of fun. They're really, really fun. 
And you can definitely see some Edith, Edith Wharton tones throughout. So the Rogue of Fifth Avenue, um, this is about Frank Tripp. He's a wealthy power broker and he has a client who has a daughter. Um, and Mamie Green, the daughter, she basically like lives a double life. She plays Robin Hood and sort of like goes below her station and secretly spreads wealth around and um, gives things away and doesn't want her father to know. And she gets wrapped up with Frank. And of course, it's a romance. So there's just a lot of fun stuff. Um, these Joanna Shoup's books are pretty steamy. Um, so there, there is sex on the page. Um, and I think that's pretty true for all of, all of her series. So the Uptown Girl series, I highly recommend. She, um, has been writing Gilded Age romance novels for a really long time though. And you really just, I don't think you can go wrong with any of her books. I, I think that she's got the fun parts of Edith Wharton with more romance. And then also, like I said, she's really got more of that social critique and a little bit of that modern eye um, where these heroines are, are striving, but in a totally different way than Lily is. And love finds them along the way. It is a lot of fun. So Joanna Shoup, any books, but the Uptown Girls series is excellent. Oh, that sounds so fun. Well, I'm starting with my most fun pairing as well. <laughs> it is The Beautiful Ones by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. And you may be familiar with the author's name because she wrote Mexican Gothic, which was a huge book last year. And then some of her older books have been being reissued. So Tor reissued The Beautiful Ones with a beautiful cover. And if Mexican Gothic was like Moreno Garcia's Bronte book. The Beautiful Ones is her like Austin Wharton book. It is glamorous and glitzy and it's it's romantic. Um, and it is a novel of manners. But of course, it's Sylvia Moreno Garcia. So there are some fun twists. So this book takes place um, in a aristocratic a Mexican society where a young woman named Nina is making her debut. And much like Lily, Nina is the object of a lot of gossip and speculation, but not because of her poverty or her bad decisions, but because she is telekinetic. And so she is thought to be a witch by the rest of her community and therefore unmarriageable. But she's also dazzling. And so she very much wants to be accepted by her community, but also to be able to embrace who she is and these powers that she really doesn't understand. And so a handsome newcomer named Hector arrives in town. He is also a telekinetic. And so he kind of takes Nina under his wing and you know, I, I think as modern readers, we have questions about like how much of this is altruistic, what's happening between these two, but it's also just romantic and glamorous and fun. Um, it was blurbed by Mary Robinette Kowal, who 
wrote the Glamorist series, which is like Regency, <laughs> um, Regency fan fiction, basically with a lot of like witchcraft and and magic, and it it feels in that same vein where we get all of the all of the historical detail and the the fashion and the ballroom scenes, but also just this this touch of of magic that makes the whole thing even even more special. So yeah, I, I think this is another one. It's a completely different world from the one Wharton describes, but still that high society with like questions about who society accepts and rejects and and why and how much should our characters strive to be part of it. All of those questions are there in a really just glorious, sparkling package. So that's The Beautiful Ones by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. It has such a pretty cover. Yeah, it has the best cover. So even if you just buy it to have on your shelf, I think (laughs) I support that decision. (laughs) Okay, my next pairing is a book that we both loved, Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. And the the subtitle here is Reflections on Self-Delusion, which feels like something Lily probably should have read. (laughs) And... I loved this essay collection. I listened to it on audio and I've been meaning to reread it on paper for a long time because I just really, really loved it, but I want to be able to mark it up. Um, So Sarah, you might have some stuff to add here um, based on what you remember, but this is an essay collection and the essays are pretty personal. Um, Tolentino was on a reality TV show as a teen and she sort of uses that as like a a point in her life where she had to consider how she was performing herself for other people because this show was very typecast and you were playing your role on this reality show, even though it was supposed to be real. And then a lot of her essays cover sort of um, how we're investigating the self on the internet and how we are sort of obsessed with ourselves and how we perform for others. And so it just sounds very, very much uh, in line with the themes of the House of Mirth. I I really, really liked Tolentino's writing and i there's just a lot of room for discussion here. You don't necessarily have to agree with everything that she says in order to feel like you're really investigating our society and getting a lot out of it. But she also has a really great essay about literary heroines, which I think is a must read for any classic literature lover. And yeah, just basically talks about how we have to keep performing and striving in a society that only cares about us being productive and pretty (laughs) and how we can really just get so wrapped up in that, especially through social media. So I think it serves as just a really great thematic pairing. And I, I really, really enjoy this essay collection. So that's Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. I love that pairing. I think the essay Always Be Optimizing really kind of speaks to <laughs> Lily and <laughs> yeah. just yeah, the the need to for constant self-improvement and improvement of one's station, but how that ultimately is more about optics than anything else. Oh, it's so it's so good. 
and a great, I think, book club pick. If your book club likes to read nonfiction, this would just be such a fun one to discuss. My next pairing is The Party Upstairs by Lee Connell. And this came out last year and it got really good reviews, but I haven't seen it splashed elsewhere. I read it, I think it was submitted for the Aspen Words Prize. And so I read it, but wasn't really able to publicly review it. But I really enjoyed it um, now that I can talk more about those books. Um, and this it, book, it's set in New York City. So it's an, a novel of, of New York, like Wharton's books. But it's not, you know, sweeping or doesn't doesn't take place over a long period of time. It's set in a 24-hour period. And I really like when books do that. I don't want every book to be set over a 24-hour period, but when authors kind of set that up as a as a project, I think it's really interesting how they condense things into that that time period. So this book is mostly about a character named Ruby, and she is the daughter of um, the super in this Upper West Side building that is it's not Upper East Side, it's Upper West Side. So it's like still extremely, you know, wealthy and privileged, but not necessarily like the gossip girl setting that that we might imagine. But Ruby has has grown up there. She lives in in the basement. And most of or a lot of her friends were kids who also grew up in the building, but they were very privileged children. Ruby was not. And much like Lily, Ruby just doesn't understand or accept that these other people can have things that she can't. So she's she's just graduated college. She took out a ton of loans so that she could major, I think, in, in art history or English or some very, you know, impractical degree that she loved. And she just wanted to be able to major in it because she wanted to. And so Ruby has like those qualities that we 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 root for and we sympathize with while we still understand that they're not the most practical decisions and that they might set her up for some some hardships later on. As the book starts, Caroline, who is the daughter of the family who owns the penthouse of this building, she's also back from college. She's throwing a huge party and she invites Ruby to go to the to the party. And I really think that's like all the setup that I want to give because this isn't this is not a thriller. But with that 24-hour time constraint, it kind of reads like that, like you're just counting down for something terrible and dramatic to happen and it does. Um you also get to hear a little bit from Ruby's father, so there's an interesting context there in how he views his kind of class circumstances versus how his daughter does and that's a really interesting comparison. So, so yeah, I, I, Ruby, like Lily, she's a, she's a striver, but an empathetic one. And I, I think this book does a really good job of showing some of those class dynamics that are at work in, in Edith Wharton's books as well. So that is The Party Upstairs by Lee Connell. I don't remember where I came across that one, that, but I put it on hold at the library the other day. Oh, nice. Well, if you read it, I will be curious to hear what you think. My last pairing here is Rules of Civility by Amor Tolles, and this is a book that I haven't read in a very long time, but when I did read it, 
I loved it for a lot of the reasons that I really loved the House of Mirth. It just totally sucks you into this glamorous world and takes you on a bit of a roller coaster ride. So it's set in 1937, or that's like when the book opens, which is post Wharton. And we see that uh, Katie, um, she's at a jazz bar, and Tinker Gray, this handsome banker, meets up with her. And this inciting incident just like blasts her forth into upper class New York society. And she is a little bit of an outsider in that society, but that means that she has to navigate it and she doesn't always know how. And that feels very Lily-ish to me. Even though Lily is of that upper class society, it seems like sometimes she takes things for granted or she's a little bit naive about them. And I think that Katie's journey into this upper class New York society sort of resembles that where she has to learn some hard lessons about how people treat her and what do they mean when they say this. And it's definitely a depiction of New York and the sparkling upper class. Just really beautifully written. Amor Tolls just has such a way with words that, like I said, it's just the kind of book that sucks you in and makes you feel like you're living in it. And I I really remember loving it. And I remember reading it over the summer, which just feels like a great pairing for the House of Mirth in terms of that like gossipy and glittery and um, sort of, I don't know, fantasy, but set in a specific historical time period to read over a summer day. So Rules of Civility by Amor Tolls partly for the character's journey, but mostly for the tone. All right. My final pairing is Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld. And I think this one probably would have come to mind anyways, but we also just read a Sittenfeld short story and I haven't paired Prep with anything yet. So I I think that this book goes so well with the House of Mirth. This book is about a character named Lee. We first meet her when she's 14. She is from Indiana, I think, somewhere in, in the Midwest, but she has found this East Coast boarding school. And through her own volition, she's applied to it. She's gotten accepted. And so her and, and she's gotten a scholarship. And so her middle class family is very excited for her. They send her off to this super elite boarding school in, I think, Massachusetts. Um, and Lee is a outsider in terms of class in this, in this novel. It's not like Lily where she's, you know, grown up in, in this world and seeks to remain a part of it. This whole world is totally new to her. And she just cannot believe the lives of her classmates and kind of what they've gotten to to do their whole lives growing up, their travels, their uh, multiple homes, just how sophisticated they seem. And she's just she's so swept up in it. And she finds herself like really wanting to fit in with the wealthy, popular crowds, but also kind of 
drawn to the other kids who are more misfits. And so like Lily, she kind of is pulled back and forth between those two groups, not really sure where she belongs or where she wants to belong. Um, and and I think for its commentary on on class and the the way you know we can or cannot change our our class situations this book is a great pairing for the house of mirth but i think it actually is even better paired because of the commentary on identity so we follow lee all four years of high school and we watch her kind of cultivate an identity for herself over the course of those four years because i mean going to boarding school is a great time to reinvent yourself because nobody knows your family or your backstory. You can be whomever you want. And and Lee does kind of become who she thinks she wants to be. And then, of course, by the end, we're not sure that's what she really wanted all along. There's also a lot of drama, a lot of boy drama, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of, you know, Lee trusting boys that she should not trust um and so so the the dramatic nature of it really goes great with with Wharton as well I do think that like we've talked about with Jane Austen retellings of Edith Wharton would fit really well in like a high school setting because of the social hierarchies and the class divisions and the drama so this is very much that so I, I think this is one of those books, too. You either love it or hate it. Curtis Sittenfeld, as we talked about in our short story episode, isn't for everyone. But I really love this book. And I think it's a great summer read, but it is a campus novel. So if you want to put it on hold at the library now and have it for fall, that would be fantastic, too. So that is Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld. Sarah, it is time for Pick of the Week, where we get to share bonus book recommendations or articles or podcast episodes, just something extra that listeners can go and just get a little little bonus relation to our main, main episode here. So what's your pick of the week for further reading, listening, watching? So today my pick is a show and a corresponding article. So we are going to have a Patreon bonus episode with lots more like Edith Wharton goodies because there are a lot of shows and more books that are inspired by her. But one that I wanted to just mention on the the big show, especially since it's getting a revival, is Gossip Girl. Um, Gossip Girl, very inspired by Edith Wharton's world of glitziness and drama and social hierarchy and keen observations and gossip, right? So I, I think it's really fun to watch some of Gossip Girl. I haven't watched the whole series. Um, I think I watched maybe the first two seasons at some point through the lens of Edith Wharton because you pick up on some subtle nods here and there. I'm thinking even of like the first episode that starts at Grand Central Station, just like the House of Mirth does. But then in addition to that, we'll put a link in the show notes to a great article called The Gossip Girl of Her Time on the Pleasures of Edith Wharton's Pulpy Minor Novels. And 
In this article, the author kind of makes the claim that Gossip Girl is even more inspired by Edith Wharton's novels that we don't really read anymore. None of which I have read, although this article makes me want to. But I guess some of her shorter minor novels were like even more drama filled and pulpy, as the title suggests. So that is a fun read to think more about Gossip Girl, Edith Wharton, and maybe pick up a few pulpy summer classics to add to your reading list. So that's Gossip Girl. And then this corresponding article. Chelsea, what is your pick of the week? I have another romance series to recommend. Another one of my favorite Gilded Age settings. Maya Rodale writes the Gilded Age Girls Club series, and all of her heroines are working women in some way. So the first one, Duchess by Design, is, of course, about a dress designer, and she designs for these elite Edith Wharton circles. So it's really fun, and it's sort of like a... um, There's a lot of class dynamics at play here because, of course, she falls in love with like a wealthy tycoon and it's just a lot of fun. So this seamstress and she so she's working for someone else. But then part of the journey of the novel is not just the love story, but it is her trying to start her own business and open her own dress shop and produce her own designs. And so that's a lot of fun to follow. The whole series, like a key component of each of these books is that there is this business club for women and they like meet in secret and give each other business tips and they contribute money to each other to get off the ground and get started. And that is a really, really fun aspect of this series. And some of the businesswomen in that club are based on real life figures, which is cool. So Maya Rodale's notes, her author's notes about the historical background are of course, well worth reading. So the first one in the series is Duchess by Design. And that is the Gilded Age Girls Club series by Maya Rodale. And then there's another one, Some Like It Scandalous, I believe, is um, a woman who's like creating makeup for women or like cosmetics. And then there's another one and she owns a department store and has a romance with the rival department store owner. So a lot of this is based in true history, but of course it just like takes it a step farther and gives these women more independence and more authority over their lives. So it's a really fun series. Um, I think it's like compared to Joanna Shoup's novels that I recommended earlier, I think the Maya Rodales maybe like one chili pepper lower on the steam scale. Like I think Joanna Shoup's novels are really steamy and Maya Rodales, they're open door, but I just don't think they're quite as steamy as Joanna Shoup. So I don't know. It's so hard to tell because everyone's (laughs) reading taste is so different. Everyone's meter is so different. But to me, that is how I would differentiate those. So yeah, Duchess by Design by Maya Rodale. If you need a little more Gilded Age, a little more romance in your life. That sounds super fun. And I just wish that Edith Wharton could be around to read these Gilded Age inspired romances and tell us her thoughts on them, whether they were scathing or complimentary. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
All right, Chelsea. Well, this was a really fun conversation. I so enjoyed revisiting the House of Mirth. And that's all we have for today. But we will have bonus pairings and some bonus discussion about the House of Mirth over on Patreon. And we would love for you to join us there, to chat with us there and the rest of our Classics Club, get live and recorded classes and bonus episodes go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to join our community. You can also be the first to know about our Instagram live schedules, new Patreon content, and more in our weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. We're so excited to hear all about your reading experiences. If you've been following along with us this summer and you read The House of Mirth, so please tag us on Instagram if you're posting there at Novel Pairings Pod. You can also tag us there on Twitter and we'll have links in the show notes to those places. We also just love to see when and where you're listening. So whenever you tag us in your Instagram stories, we love to just see where you're listening to Novel Pairings Pod. And one other thing is if you could please keep spreading the word about us, send your friends a link. If you think that they'll be interested in the show, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, those really do make a difference as we grow our small business here. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with an episode on our best books of the year so far. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of